Good evening. So we are two of three. Our, uh, welcome to the fall book study. Get back to the beginning. All right, so we're doing three Tuesday evenings. Um, looking at the book, Saints, Suffers, and Sinners. As the subtitle reads, Loving Others as God Loves Us. So tonight is week two. Stacy's going to help me tonight. She is my scribe, which is so nice. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start with our overriding uh, diagram. As Christians, we are all saints. We are saints who suffer, and we are saints who sin. These categories are not equal. We are always saints. This book is also about our normal, typical conversations. These are the quick five minutes that you had before we started tonight. It's the longer walks, uh, walking the dog, going to coffee. And it's riding in the car with your family, people who know us best. It's our prayer requests. These are all conversations. So the book is about conversations that we, who are saints and sufferers and sinners, are having with our friends, who are also saints and sufferers and sinners. So... Uh, let's begin with saint. Um, what is true of us? And when, when I say that, I want you to think about yourself personally. How do you think about yourself? When you think about your past, what stands out? When you consider your future, what are your assumptions about your future? When you tell your story, what do you emphasize? And what do you leave out? And do any of these ideas connect in a daily way to the resurrected Christ? And then we're talking with our friends who are also saints. We're hearing a friend. What do we hear? What stands out? What might we be assuming? What questions do we ask? And what questions do we not think to ask? So second, we all live in the world where we experience evil. Evil expresses itself in two ways. Evil comes at us. That is what that, that is sort of the big umbrella of hardships and sorrows. So we are sufferers. Tonight we're going to discuss how we are sufferers and how the Lord's comfort is essentially relational. And then finally, we'll deal next week with evil that comes out of us. How do we live with this tension of wanting to do right? And that is sometimes hard to achieve. So as sinners, how do we change? So Mike Umlet's book, Saints, Suffers, and Sinners, Loving Others as God Loves Us, helps us model our care for each other based on how the Lord loves us. God cares for us as saints who need understanding to live out of our identity as children of God. God cares for us as sinners who need comfort in the middle of our difficulties. And God cares, I said that wrong, didn't I? Suffers who need comfort in the middle of our difficulties. And the Lord cares for us as sinners who need challenge to our sin in light of his redemptive mercies. So, tonight we will look at suffer. Okay, so that's the end of our introduction. I'm going to do some form of that next week as well, just in case you know, people are trying to find their bearing. On the handout, I gave you um, a quick outline of last week, if that's helpful, if you want it. It's... The sidebar says Saints, October 11, so that hopefully will be helpful to you. 
And then my outline for this evening is under um, Suffers October 18. So we will get through it bit by bit. My first point is the situation is always significant. Situation is always significant. We want a practical theology of life's situation because it is a significant part of the Bible. Situation is a significant part of our lives and a significant part of every conversation we have. We all live on a stage of significant events and influential forces. So we're going to draw a diagram. We're going to begin with a heart. The Bible, Stacy's going to help me. She's, this is so great. Thank you. Um, the Bible speaks of our heart as the morals, our moral center. And our heart lives embedded. We are embedded in our bodies, our physical bodies. We are somatic. We take our bodies with us everywhere we go. Our bodies exert influence. The body and the heart are linked. We are embodied spirits. Beyond our bodies, yep, body would be great. So that next circle is going to be body. And then there's a, a circle beyond that that will house our relationships. We are relationally embedded. Now, if you want to, when this is all over, because Stacy will write a lot on this, you can just take a picture of it if you want to. So just know that you have that option. So we live relationally embedded. We live life with people that we know. And then also, we are embedded culturally, socially, societally. We live in communities of other people outside of our direct relationships, but who shape our world. Uh, finally, we live spiritually embattled. The devil is on the prowl. We live in a world where we cannot see everything that is real. So we'll think a little bit more about all of these. The heart. The main thing I want you to think about with the heart is that it is our inner disposition of a person who lives either in covenant obedience to the Lord or in covenant disobedience to the Lord. The Old Testament and the New Testament both refer to this immaterial part of who we are as an inner disposition. This heart captures the contrast in Romans 1 between God who is creator and we who are the created. In scripture, the heart is called many things. Soul, spirit, mind, will, conscience, hidden self, inner nature. So our heart is our inner disposition toward God. Body. Our body is material. Our body is biological. Our body is biochemical. So the body is the heart's context. We speak of the heart, excuse me, we speak of the body in terms of strength and weakness, health and disease. For example, we're affected by colds. We're affected by sleep or poor sleep or a year of poor sleep. We might suffer from pain from a back injury. Eczema can last years. Under stress, do you break out in hives too? 
every cancer, every brain injury. A diagnosis is always suffering. The body also captures our psychological context. It's a description of what's happening. So we've all, we've all made jokes or heard jokes about, oh, my ADD was doing this, and we know that that's being funny. And poor concentration can be hard to live with. What would it be like to live in the extreme swings of a bipolar condition or the lows of depression? A psychological diagnosis is always suffering. Our body includes our inherited traits, your hair texture, likely your ability to smell and enjoy food. You inherited that uh, smell. Are you good at drawing? Your large and fine motor skills, of course, are all functions of your body. How about memories? Some of our memories seem to have a long shelf life. Um, do we relive past uh, pain or regret or happy things? So the heart is moral. The body is the heart's context. The body mediates the heart, meaning that the heart is influenced by but acts through the body as thoughts, as feelings, and as actions. And we'll likely talk more about that next week. All right. Now, the left side of the bigger circle. Friends and family influence us. For example, what were your parents' strengths when you were growing up? What did your family discuss? Do you currently have young children? What traditions are important to the people around you? Do you have a high-pressure job? Friends and family influence us. Relationships is where we're influenced by another sin against us. And that would be the sharp edge of suffering. Also, seeing the sufferings of others is very influential, very affecting. How do we think about the sufferings of others? And we live in a world of human differences. We live on a broad spectrum of variety. The Bible talks openly about our differences, but never honors the great or shames the small. For example, no, pe no two people have the same amount of money. Some people are physically strong, and others may be more flexible. Some people are talented, others have one talent. Some are witty, others more concrete. Some of us are clunky, and others are more athletic. Some of us are healthy, others become ill easily and often. Some tend toward artistic expression, others create organized structures. We may think in detail or more big picture. The Lord is the author of all of our human differences. All right, so culture and society. Generally speaking, culture is values and society is people groups. So it's more, it can be more detailed than that. That's pretty good. So we live in a medicalized era. That's our era in history that does not see God and reduces complex experiences into categories that are more narrow. So we live in a medicalized era. We face a marketplace of options. Every time we open our phone, 
the world is coming at us, or we're throwing ourselves at the world, or we may be. Our culture answers the question, what gets rewarded? So a few years ago, a prominent news anchor began to wear his hair gray. Pretty soon you saw actors and actresses wearing their hair gray. They hadn't been gray before and suddenly they were gray. And then of course we got COVID and that would give anyone gray hair. So in a really short amount of time, our culture in a pretty big way went from women typically coloring their hair to often going gray. Now, I'm aware that there are trendsetters in this room who are way ahead of this curve. But for the rest of us, we were influenced. I stopped coloring my hair. And this influenced me and others like me on how we spend our money. So culture answers what gets rewarded. Disinformation. We live awash in disinformation. We live in a world of human differences. Interesting, too, that as Stacy put that list up, we buy into those, some of those differences as important, but not all of them. If you don't buy into the system, you're unaffected by it. Isn't that interesting? We can take things that might be good and make them ultimate. If we do that, we've bought into disinformation. We live spiritually embattled. Behind every lie is the liar. Behind every hatred is the murderer. And then finally, <laughs> after all this bad news, um, there are true images, there are true voices, and there are true role models who teach us how to live and rightly orient us. Church is a great source of true role models and true voices. As we grow, each of us have opportunity to take on the responsibility of becoming a true voice and a true role model. So our hearts, as we said in the beginning, the very center are our disposition toward or against God. But our hearts are influenced by our bodies, by our relationship, by our culture, by our society, by spiritual forces. If we ignore these influences in our conversations, we miss walking humbly with our friends who, like us, are saints and sufferers and sinners. In contrast, if we consider these determinative, we truncate the transforming message of God's redeeming mercies. So situation is always significant, but not determinative. The situation helps us understand our struggles, helps us understand our friends' struggles. Situation is always significant, but not determinative. So how is our situation not determinative? Our situation is not determinative because our ultimate situation is God. We live in God's world. Jesus enters into every aspect of our situation on our behalf. God is our environment. So my second point tonight is that our ultimate situation is God. Now, if you're looking on your paper, you will see that I had a different title for this. I changed it. It was, biblical comfort is essentially relational, but now it is, our ultimate situation is God. All right, so our ultimate situation is God in absolutely every way. Well, we're going to talk about two ways, vertically 
and horizontally. So let's begin with this. Our ultimate situation is God vertically. Let's see how God is our environment. As saints, we saw that God is personal, that our identity is essentially relational. So without God, our identity really makes no sense. We are defined by our connection to him, to God himself. So it is with suffering. God's comfort is essentially relational to God himself. Without God, without his people, without uh, his word, biblical comfort makes no sense. Our ultimate situation is God. God enters our suffering and transforms and reinterprets our story. It's a miracle that our living God gives through his word, through his spirit, through his, perp- perp- his people. Our ultimate situation is God. Taking refuge in the Lord. So this is going to be a subpoint. Oh, look at you. You're all over it. All right. Vertically, taking refuge in the Lord. So turning to the Lord reshapes our suffering. Turning to the Lord reshapes our situation. Let's look at how we might take refuge in the sun through scripture. There are many ways to turn to the Lord through his word. This evening, I'll just show you one. So on your handout, you have a picture of a temple. Notice on the front of the temple, notice the two columns on the front. These columns are on either side of the entrance, and they would have invited ancient Israel into the presence of the Lord, into refuge. The first column represents Psalm 1. The second column represents Psalm 2. So let's take the first column. The first column and the first psalm are the blessed life. In Psalm 1, God explains the contrast between those who are blessed, those who belong to Christ. They are blessed in contrast with those who do not. They are the wicked. Psalm 1 shows us this radically different new life as those who belong to the Lord. We were the wicked, now we belong. We now are God's children, completely of God's doing, like we saw in 1 Corinthians 1. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 1, last week. So, column 1 and Psalm 1 represent the same thing, okay? So, how about the second column? The second column is represented by Psalm 2. The second column and Psalm 2 are about the Son, about the Lord's Christ. So flip over the page, and I'll just quickly talk you through this just because of time. I've underlined words. Every word that I underline is either a name of God or a pronoun of God in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a conversation among the persons of the Godhead. They're asking sort of the ultimate universal question about the disposition of people's hearts. They're asking the question in the negative, why, uh, why or actually in the positive, why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Why do they set their heart against the Lord and against his rule? The next two stanzas are a discussion. The Lord responds that he will unite all things in Christ, which is what we, will, is what we see in Ephesians. And then in verse 10, I think this is so great. Verse 10 starts out, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. So the Lord is talking to his enemies. 
He's giving them an invitation to turn to the Son and become the blessed. And then finally in verse 12, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed, well, we learn from Psalm 1 that blessed are those who belong to the Lord. We are the blessed. We belong to God. We are his saints. We are saints who live in a world where sin comes at us. We are saints who suffer. Therefore, we take refuge in the Son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what does it look like to take refuge in the Lord? So I want to show you, um, maybe you've heard this word, maybe not. It's called lament, to lament. So biblical lamenting is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Biblical lament goes somewhere. It's a pathway to praise when life gets hard. We're going to look at Psalm 13, which is just the next thing on page two. So if you would, we'll look at it one stanza at a time. So the first stanza, you'll see that I've underlined how long each time it occurs on this first page. We're not turning the page yet. We're at the bottom of page two. So first of all, who is talking? The author of the song, right, the singer. I'll call him the singer. The singer is talking. Very good. Who is the singer talking to? Excellent. The Lord. That's right. So before really even looking into the psalm, we can see that the singer is turning to God in prayer. There are going to be four points that we're going to pull out of this psalm. So this is the first one, turning to God in prayer. All righty. Now, look into the content of the first stanza, just the bottom of page two. What has been a long time? What do you see? Good. Any particulars? Very good. Alone. Yes, lovely. Very good. Alone because what? Forgotten. Forgotten. Excellent. Very good. How about anything else? Hmm, that's good. So he's so someone else has triumphed over him. Are they sad about that? Do they feel bad about it? Having triumphed over this person? Yes, they're delighted. They're celebrating. So this person has been shaken. I think that's the word that's used. And other people are celebrating that they're doing terribly. So we have being forgotten. The next line, you, uh, how long will you hide your face from me? That's actually more intentional. That's stronger. Often in poetry, you'll see that the first line will make a statement and the second line will press it a little bit further. Very good. So we have our singer who is turning to God in prayer and our singer is bringing up his sorrows. So bringing up your sorrows. Excellent. Very good. All right, we can turn the page. All righty. What is the, um, let's see. If you would, take, if you have a pencil in your hand, underline the first line of verse 3. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. And then the next little phrase, lift up my eyes. What is the singer doing here? Petitioning, excellent, very good. Yep, All right, great. Um, another word for the same, very good, is asking. And I think it's a pretty bold ask. 
and his situation is bad. I've underlined lest because he sees sort of what's at stake. What do you see there? What is at stake? Yes, death. Oh, there it is. There's a shaken. I got a little ahead of myself there. Excellent. That's right. Very good. Now, uh, look at verses 5 and 6. The singer has become aware of some things about God. So on your paper, if you would circle, what has the singer become aware of? What does the singer become aware of? Steadfast love. Very good. Excellent. What else? Great. Anything else? Excellent. That's right. The generosity of God. Very good. So the singer, who before could not see, can now see. The Lord has opened his eyes. Notice, too, that the singer speaks of himself. Underline what the singer has decided. What has the singer decided? Thank you. Yes. Right. To trust and rejoice. Excellent. Very good. Anything else? Sing. Sing. Very good. That's right. So, uh, the singer now has chosen to trust or praise. The singer who could not before see asked the Lord to open his eyes. And then he was able to see God's love, God's salvation, that were always there but now he could see them. I think lift up my eyes is just a beautiful expression of how the Lord is our ultimate situation. He transforms our stories by moving us from being self-referential to becoming God-referential. So Psalm 13 shows us the four elements of biblical lament. Turning to God in prayer, bringing up our sorrows or complaints, asking boldly, and choosing to trust or praise. So biblical lament goes somewhere. Biblical lament reorients us. The situation is always significant, but not determinative, because our ultimate situation is God. Lamenting is one way to take refuge in the Son, who is personal. All right, so we've reached the end of our vertical. Now we're going to look at Our ultimate situation is God in a more horizontal way. Become a keeper of her story. And we're going to start this with an activity. So Anne, would you pop up for me? Anne is here for visual support. Thank you. Excellent. It's very helpful. So I want you to pair up, not yet. We're going to do this in twos. There's going to be a speaker and there's going to be a listener. We're going to give everybody the same prompt, and we'd like you to talk about this. Tell about a time that was challenging. Smaller is better, recent is better, but just some time that was challenging or difficult or hard. So as I think about this, I thought I lost my phone on Sunday. So for 20 minutes, that was challenging for me. And I knew that there was a good Samaritan in my world who had given my phone somewhere to somebody in my, in my household. And that is true. That is what happened. So, but I'm going to tell my friend about something that is challenging for 30 seconds. 
and we're going to use a timer, and we're going to use a bell, so it's truly 30 seconds. Okay? Now, my listener's job is simply to listen, and when her 30 seconds comes, she's going to tell me back her best understanding of my story, my perspective. Does that make sense? And then I'm going to have a second chance where I say, I might want to nuance or change a little bit of what she understood for another 30 seconds. Ding. And then she's going to tell me back in the final 30 seconds her best understanding of what I've communicated to her. Now, does that make sense? Excellent. Very good. All righty. Go. So, all righty. So, we are on, so notice the vertical line, whoops, notice the vertical line taking refuge in the sun and the horizontal line, a keeper of her story. So we're talking now about our horizontal relationships being a keeper of our friend's story. What might be important in conversation? I have two kind of chunks of things I want to communicate to you. The first chunk is, how do I see myself in the conversation? The second chunk is about what we actually talk about. Alrighty? So, in a conversation, how do I see my role? Who am I in this conversation? Am I a source of information? So, the answer is, maybe. Children, or parents teach their children and older women teach younger women. And those are wonderful things. So the answer is maybe. Uh, how about this one? Whose comfort am I seeking? Recently, I listened to a very sad situation. And I could feel that I wanted to offer. I wanted to suggest a way out. Because I felt uncomfortable. I could see that I wanted to... I just read that. However, my friend was not asking me to play that role. If I had offered a solution, it would have been my own comfort that I was interested in. Another question that might be helpful to us, what assumptions am I bringing? Are there other interpretations beyond what is coming to mind for me that could be helpful? And to that, you might think where there's confusion that you might widen the circle. That, that might look like an, an invitation for wisdom. Another question. Have I listened long enough that I know how she would like me to be helpful? So we want to grow in knowing ourselves. We want to grow in wisdom. And so we're going to ask, who am I in this conversation and how do I see my role? So that is the who am I section. Now we're in the What's important in the conversation section? Mike Emlett, the author of the book, would offer, he would say that the first step to helping is connecting to a person's suffering. Most people want to talk because they need hope. And so I want to become a keeper of my friend's story. So what does it mean to be a keeper of her story? What am I listening for? So I want to throw out to you four skills, three cautions, and one objection. So four skills. 
take the suffering of others seriously. And what I mean by that is all of this that we talked about. Because we all live in a context of significant events and influential forces. We want to see ourselves as the Lord does. Scripture sees people in context. We want to see ourselves and others in context. If we ignore situation, situations, we miss walking humbly with our friends. If we consider them determinative, we truncate the transforming message of God's redeeming mercies. So, number one, take the suffering of others seriously. Number two, ask questions. What's going on is a great question. Work hard to understand their story. As we saw in the listener speaker, or at least half of us saw, that can be challenging to do. Understanding, understand her perspective well enough to tell it back to her. So number two, ask questions. Number three, slow down for emotion. Be moved. Suffering disorients us. Our purpose is to image Christ as a sister. So number three, slow down for emotion. Be moved. And then four, remember what seems important to her. And in a couple weeks, ask how she's doing because you love her. So number four, remember what seems important to her. Be a keeper of her story. All right, so those are my four skills. Here's three cautions. Why not fix? Right? Why not offer solutions? That could be super helpful. Well, here's something to think about first. My friend has been living with and thinking about their situation longer. So what have they already done? Learn what's been helpful. Offering solutions, being, you know, fixing, can create this over-under dynamic. But not always. So with two adults, I'd suggest we start with a side-by-side, sufferer-to-suffer dynamic. And then we can grow together. Here's my second caution. Let's be careful to not presume the reason why. God is inscrutable. He leads by his own will and purpose. I found it fabulous that uh, Mike Emlett, he, he turned to Revelation 2 where Jesus is talking to the seven churches. And in, to Smyrna in particular, he gave no reason for their suffering. He would know the reason for their suffering, but he gave no reason. We interpret our stories from inside the middle. And Dr. Emlett would also say that perspective is often given by the Spirit of God in retrospect. And then my third caution, never gossip. Never gossip. All right, here's the objection. Well, what if I have wise concerns about my my friend said, about what she believes, about what she wants? Didn't you just say that Psalms 210, be wise and be warned, is an expression of God's mercy? Absolutely. The Lord's comfort includes wisdom and it includes warning. And there may be opportunity to ask about those things. 
I'm encouraging us to grow in listening so that we can care more wisely. Have I listened well enough that I can tell her back my understanding of her story? Which is our transition to doing the speaker-listener activity one more time, in reverse. All right. Each Tuesday evening, I want to close out our time by connecting our topic, Saint Suffer Center, to Jesus Christ, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So how is Jesus the ultimate sufferer? So my last point on my outline, Jesus the ultimate sufferer. You know the four um, sort of you know, parking spots in history, right? Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. <laughs> Those might not be the most elegant descriptions. Anyway, creation. So God created, as, as we tie Jesus Christ to the ultimate sufferer, as the ultimate sufferer, God created Adam and Eve in his image and likeness. He was with them. There was no suffering in the garden. And then the fall. When Adam and Eve rejected God, very much like the uh, nations in, in uh, Psalm 2, they brought upon themselves and every human, every suffering, they brought upon themselves death in every form. God judged them for rejecting him. However, before his judgment was over, he promised to send his beloved son as the seed of the woman to redeem them back from his judgment and from all their suffering. We saw in the pillars of the temple a picture of redemption. We saw Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Psalm 1 being those that are blessed, belong to the Lord, and in Psalm 2, Jesus who redeems us. We were the wicked. We have become the blessed. The blessed take refuge in the Lord. So I'll spend just, I want to throw out three things in this redemption piece. When Jesus came into the world, he came as the ultimate sufferer. Uh, Number one, as the ultimate sufferer, he came personally. He did not send somebody else. He personally defeated the seed of the serpent. He personally took on the death penalty of God. I love this verse, Revelation 1.18. Christ says of himself, I have this I have this kind of almost a cartoon picture. I am the living one. I died. I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. So you, you counterbalance that with the fall. They, they bring upon themselves death and every form of suffering, and Jesus rises from the dead holding the keys of death and the grave. It's just this graphic picture in my mind. So Jesus came personally to suffer. The second item, as the ultimate sufferer, Jesus came to relieve suffering. One mark of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God is that Jesus relieves suffering. The four gospels describe Jesus' ministry this way. He went around teaching. They didn't use these words, but healing a dizzying array of diseases. Short-term diseases, long-term diseases, sometimes in groups, raising dead people to life, restoring them back to their families. He fed thousands of hungry people, and he set free many who had been captured by demons. 
So Jesus came to relieve suffering. And then the final of the three items under redemption. As the ultimate sufferer, Jesus came to transform us. He reframes our suffering by connecting us to Christ. As the children of the King of Kings, some of our suffering is in training. The, the, the tree of life, which was in the garden, it shows up again in Proverbs as wisdom learned. Now, I'm not making a categorical statement that all suffering is for training, but it is in the package somewhere. For example, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 8, the first uh, verses 2 and 3, the Lord says, I let you feel hunger so that you would know what is in your heart. And the next part of the verse is, and so that you would not live by bread alone. And Jesus, of course, uses this in the New Testament. In the New Testament, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, says, <laughs> Beloved, beloved, blessed, do not be surprised at fiery trials when they come upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. It's not the whole package, but training, wisdom, growing in maturity is part of our suffering package. And then finally, uh, the new creation. So we had creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And to this, if you would look at the last page on your paper, Revelation 21. Jesus describes his own actions in his kingdom. I'll read it out loud for us. Well, actually, yeah, that's fine. Verse 3, I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So I want to offer to you that the underlying verse, verse 4, is about suffering. The situation is significant. He will wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, or pain. These are big items. They really matter. But this verse is sandwiched between verses 3 and 5. In verse 3, we see, look at the second part. He will dwell with them. He will dwell with them. He will, they will be his people. They belong to him. And he will be with them as their God. Our ultimate situation is the living God. And then in verse 5, he who is seated on this throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Again, our situation is, situations are significant but not determinative because we belong to the Lord. Our situation is the living God. All righty. So, that feels like a pretty good recap. I think that's pretty good. So, we are saints who suffer. 
And we are saints who sin, we are saints nonetheless. Next week, we will look at the center portion of Mike's book, and we will look at how do we change. And this title may surprise you, but biblical change is essentially relational. So we'll go off that theme. I just want to read to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I think Carla referred to that that verse, but, um, <clears throat> you know, Carla started out by just, there's a picture of our situation there, so many different things coming at us, and then the next thing she did was take, took us to um, uh, the taking refuge in the sun, the vertical response that we ourselves have to our suffering, and I just thought that was just that, that sentence there is so helpful, taking refuge in the sun, the idea of God being a comforter. Um, I think that some of the scriptures that are on here, we, we're going through them quickly here, but I would encourage you to go home and to spend a little bit more time with those scriptures, considering God as our refuge, considering um, uh, that being the way that God brings us comfort, thinking about the temple, reading Psalm 1, reading Psalm 2. So it is tempting to... Um, just be done when we're done, but I think those scriptures are really rich, and Carla started to help us to dig into them, and I would encourage us to do it more. So we had the vertical way that we ourselves approach suffering, and then we had the horizontal way that we minister to each other as we go through suffering, and we did that wonderful exercise and um, that helped us to understand how Carla's encouraging us to apply those tips and those cautions. Very applicable to our lives, right? All of these things. So I would just encourage you to spend a little more time thinking about it. There's a lot that came at us, but at the end, you can look back and see how it all comes together. So think about it um, a little bit more. Uh, Here's a summary at the end of this section in Mike Inlet's book. In summary, remember that God moves toward his suffering people with compassion and intentionality. We do the same in our everyday relationships and counseling ministry. Paul captures this dynamic in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7. I read you a little bit of that when he speaks of the way the comfort of Christ overflows into our lives so that we can minister comfort to others in the midst of their affliction. At the end of the day, we're offering more than ourselves to suffering brothers and sisters in Christ for bringing the very comfort of Jesus Christ. So that 2 Corinthians description will, I think that will be a description of all of us. The Lord brings all of us suffering one way or another, and he does want to use us. He wants to comfort us and use us to comfort others. I'm really aware right now of that in Carla's life, how the Lord has uh, brought her comfort and how she is using that to help us. So let's just thank her again with our applause. So very significant, and let me pray as we go. Dear Father, we do pray that um, the glimpse that we've been able to get from your word of, of how we can take comfort in you, how you can be a refuge, and how we can extend um, ourselves to others. Father, I pray that we would be able to spend more time on this and this would take root in our in our hearts and that you would help us to grow um, as sufferers and ministering to our fellow sufferers. Uh, please be with these women as they drive home and bless their families there for um, uh, giving them up for a night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.